Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts. My guest today is Christy Edmonds. Christy currently serves as the Executive and Artistic Director for UCLA's Center for the Art of Performance, or CAP UCLA as it is known. Prior to this, Edmonds was the Founding Executive and Artistic Director of the Portland Institute for Contemporary Art and the TBA Festival, which, stood for, which stands for Time-Based Art in Portland, Oregon. She was the artistic director for the Melbourne International Arts Festival from 2005 to 2008 and was the first to serve an unprecedented four-year term. Upon completion, she was appointed as the head of the School of Programming Arts at the Victorian College of the Arts, University of Melbourne, and after one year became the deputy dean for the college. Concurrently, Edmonds worked as the inaugural consulting artistic director for the now critically heralded Park Avenue Armory in New York. That was during 2009 to 2012. Our conversation took place during mid-May. We talked about the unique relationship between artists, producers, managers, and agents, and how social distancing has completely changed this dynamic. Christy also spoke about some of these scenarios she is exploring with her team at CAP UCLA for future presentations as well as some very important resources that artists can take advantage of right now. These include Americans for the Arts and artistsrelief.org. The later is a fund which is currently awarding $5,000 grants to artists facing dire financial emergencies due to COVID-19. You can go to artistsrelief.org to learn more about this. I am grateful for Christie's time, and I think you will find this conversation both very honest in terms of where the performing arts are currently at, as well as very inspiring. Thank you for listening, everyone. Christy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. Oh, thank you, Mike. Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to our conversation and um, just, you know, kind of wanted to frame the context for how you and I got connected to do this. You recently sent a really well-thought email to the community, which I... I just want to thank you for sending that, first of all, because it, it, it was very informative. It was very, I thought it was very sensitive. I thought it was, um, and you just did such a good job acknowledging everybody in in the ecosystem that we all work in. And I, I was really appreciative to read that. So thank you for sending that out. And that got me thinking, I would love to speak with you <laughs> and learn about, you know, how how you guys are faring with this in general and some of the things you guys are thinking about and you're, you're dealing with and everything. So, um, again, thanks for sending that out, and thanks for agreeing to speak with me today. Maybe we should just kind of start here by thinking about, you know, we're, we're in the beginning to mid-May right now, and the school, the fall school semester is certainly right around the corner. Um, I'm not sure if you know or if you're at liberty to say, so I don't want to put you on the spot, whether or not students will be coming back in the fall at this point, but my think, my question, of course, is, well, whether they come back or not, how does that work for you guys as a presenting organization on campus? Well, I mean, a few things. Um, thank you again. And, you know, when I sent that letter out, it was really, and I'll just, I'll just try and describe it a little bit, but it was so important to me to acknowledge with clarity the interdependence of our professions. Um, the role producers, managers, and agents play in working alongside of artists and working with a presenting community that I think sometimes, you know, we end up in those relationships where part of it is a kind of negotiation and contracts and all of that, but the other part of it is really grounded in this mutual trust of trying to carry work forward and distribute that work through our, you know, different kind of business models that are very, very linked. and in talking with a lot of presenters around the country and festival directors and also with a lot of artists, I just felt like, my God, there is no, there is absolutely no coherent, consistent, <laughs> um, you know, roadmap at all. And, and we're all thinking things in very different ways. And some of that thinking is purely around self-preservation. And some of it is very pivoted towards how do we help the artists? And, Agents, managers, and producers are critical in that, and so I just wanted to acknowledge the work that you do because it's vastly more than just booking shows, building a contract, and then trying to hold it. It's literally about an infrastructure of how 
performing arts culture moves around the U.S. and internationally. So that was important to me. And I wanted to share some of the insights that I was having from being so um, involved in the international uh, dialogues as well as UCLA's uh, kind of medical community and what they were looking at and so on and so forth. And I felt like it would help if I shared it so that you guys could look at some of the headwinds that are out there and maybe it would help your planning. You know, it's like, how, how does one be neighborly? <laughs> it was a welcome breath of fresh air, for sure. Uh, yeah, thank you. In terms of UCLA and the students uh, coming back, UCLA is a good long distance from that, that kind of decision-making. Um, and I'm not really in that planning map at all. But what I would say is that for the Center for the Art of Performance um, here on, at Royce Hall, and we also present quite a lot of work uh, downtown at the theater at the Ace Hotel and other kinds of venues around the city, the student community makes up and the faculty make up a percentage of an audience along with the public. So wherever the public, including students and faculty, are, that is an important part of our uh, audience, obviously. And so we will continue to do the kinds of things that we're doing now to make sure that we're able to hold hold a community together, offer what we can with the artists that we're working with, um, put ideas and frameworks around whatever they're studying and what they're thinking about. It's literally how do we link arms to keep a community um, involved in the ideas that artists are making in the the music, the dance, the theater, you know, the spoken word, the whole thing. And it's a big kind of pivot, but it constantly involves uh, thinking through mm, fluid models for the artists to embrace, for the now very thin economies that we have to work with to be able to carry. Um, to the best of our own capacities and and obviously to signal that an audience who cares about all of this um, is is also informed and participating with us well it just you know listening to you describe the wide range of audience members you guys attract right just makes me think if I thought I knew this was complicated, <laughs> yeah. um, it's actually even more complicated. And so, I, and I know people listening um, around the country, everybody is dealing with their own unique set of challenges and circumstances and constraints, whether they're, whether we're talking about a, a smaller club that's independent or we're talking about a large theater or quite frankly, even arena acts. I mean, everybody is suddenly in this together. And that's one thing you keep hearing from speaking to people and reading articles right now is everybody says, we're, you know, we're really in this together. And that's a good thing <laughs> in a yeah. way, right? But it's the thing, I mean, you used the word, you know, our ecology earlier, and I really completely agree. And I think, you know, when we say we're all in this together, no matter how different our corner is we make up a collective part of a cultural ecology and to me the most important thing to keep focused on is that that ecosystem has to rise and recover together which is not the same as the pivots that work only towards total self-preservation i mean beyond life and health but self-preservation mm -hmm. of one organization or one producing entity or one set of artists or one art form or one particular demographic. It's literally we are interdependent, we are interlocked, and this being able to help one another work towards a recovery no matter where we are in that time scale, some things will come back first other things it's going to take longer. But I think it's a really important, almost philosophical position of of really recognizing um, that the future is going to be uneven for all of us. Not all of us are going to probably make it across the line um, from an economic standpoint, but we have to try. 
we've all collectively and independently ended up building what is the distribution mechanism for the world of performing arts ideas and those artists and our different kind of trade routes and locations and all of those things are really the infrastructure across the U.S. and how we make sure that we are holding one another in mind and with regard uh, and to speak with that level of generosity across our spectrum, I think matters greatly. One of the things in the email you sent out that I found very, very insightful and just and just kind of, I guess, helpful is some of the feedback you offered from what you're hearing from your own patrons as far as how are what are people's confidence level when we are able to do live events again, and how do we you know, how do you kind of gauge that? Can you talk just a little bit about that and in, in general terms maybe, you know, what okay. what you're finding out at this point? Yeah, I mean, our present reality as we know, which includes the present reality of our patrons, audiences, supporters, fans, the whole bit, really is really closely attenuated to hearing from state and local health officials first on you know, guidelines and, you know, decision-making, it is absolutely first and foremost about um, security and health. And what I think is going on with the audience members that I've spoken to, and I've spoken to a lot of them, it was really important to me to get on the phone and exchange emails and all of those kinds of things. The confidence level, you know, on the one hand, I guess I would describe it, is that it's it's slim, there's such unevenness in the application of different kinds of states and what they're doing in terms of opening up and in what way, with what restrictions or what not. So in a way, it depends on where your geography is. But as things uh, re-kind of open, our mobility is also a transmission of COVID-19, and we know it. So the audiences that I've spoken to and some of these people are truly like they are cultural omnivores. They are, you know, the performing arts and attending shows is an absolute passion and part of their, you know, life and identity. So they have a kind of tender relationship to how they feel. One is that they truly miss what we do and feel like they will never take it for granted ever again. But they also feel a little bit helpless because they're in demographics that are high-risk populations, either because of age or because of the unevenness of how, um, you know, health is in different cultural uh, groups. So pre-existing conditions and all these different things makes people extremely vulnerable and tender about a thing they passionately care for not being something that they can access truly, and most of them will say, until there's a vaccine. And that, as we know, is a long time down the future pipeline. So there's that piece of um, a kind of honesty. Um, there's also, I think, for many of them, this sense of like, I just want to dive right back in. We got to keep going. You know, this is how we resist. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and 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 that too will have its own. So what I have to do, and I think many of our colleagues have to do, is think through these layers where you say there's going to be many people who will boldly step back, and we know that to be true. But others who have been part of the stalwart fabric of making up our audiences, um, they won't. That's a psychological, personal choice, and so on and so forth. So we have to make the kinds of determinations that help everyone remain connected to what we can do. And so for the center now, we will definitely proceed with some of our presenting um, and, and the kind of programming but it may be that it's only the artists who are on that stage without a public there, and we will bring in, like we did with Lady Smith Black Mombasso, um, a camera, you know, some camera operators and edit the work and then stream it out. 
Other things, we just don't know what the size and scale of that is going to be. But we end up, I think, having to make as clear of a position as we can so that audiences aren't, you know, overridden with, you know, passionate desire. And we have not done all the due diligence associated with keeping people safe. The other thing, and I just wanted to mention, is that there's, you know, there's like all these different things. Will it be 50 people in a, you know, 200,000 square foot space? Will it be 20? Will it be 200? All of those you have to wait for health officials to kind of start addressing. But the cost compendium of, you know, people can be spaced through a 2000C hall very well. Um, you can sequence them in, and but the... You can't, once they're in there, you, you have no idea if people get up and get into the aisles or any of this other stuff. So it starts to be a lot of different kind of choreography <clears throat> and, you know, the constant cleaning and sanitizing of the, the venue or staggering things. So it's like the artists perform five times over the course of a day for 20 people. I mean, all of these scenarios are being discussed. And not to bang on totally, but if I pivot to really then the artists themselves as a conversation, you know, there's also that piece of a kind of vulnerability that they are feeling about in when will they be able to get back together to rehearse? How mm -hmm. do they space themselves in a configuration on the stage? You've got the crew members and the technical workers that are interdependent to this uh, whole process. They, too need to be, you know, how does all that spacing work and how do we make sure that we are holding everybody's consideration, um, you know, physically and in health. But also there's the vulnerability of, you know, artists bust their asses to make the work extraordinary and special to the highest and best of their capacities. And when they head towards a tour date or they head towards a live performance, they they want to know in their, you know, inner kind of truth together as musicians or dancers or theater performers that they have been able to rehearse what they now can give to its highest and best. And we don't yet know when those kinds of rehearsals can happen. Musicians are able to rehearse together, you know, on Zoom and various other platforms, but the time delay that happens in there with really refined music changes the music so then they feel oh my god i'm not upholding the intent of the composer <laughs> that time delay is not built into the notes mm. so you know there's lots and lots and lots of things um to be mindful of to be thoughtful of to be understanding of and to think through across our ecosystem one of the things that's really not sure what the right right word is, but as as this virus progresses and affects us and changes us each day, it's it's been very frustrating at times um, to see or to observe how different parts of the country are reacting or therefore not reacting to it. And I don't want to I don't want to have our conversation steer into politics, but I'm I read an article on Billboard the other day um, that is talking about an artist who is going to potentially do the first show since shows have been canceled. Um, and this is going to take place in Arkansas uh, at a venue that normally has 1,100 capacity. Um, it's, it's What is it called? It's called Temple Live in Arkansas. 1,100 capacity theater. They're going to reduce it to 230 seats. And the article goes on to talk about um, all the things they're doing to hopefully protect everybody. But, I mean, you know, this is – this show is supposed to happen on May 15th, and we're, you and I are having this conversation on May 7th. May 15th to me feels pretty early to do this, to do a show. I mean, and the concern, I think, across the board is if even one person at this show gets sick and the news gets out, it sets us all back yeah. however much longer. And in some respects, the um, social distancing we've all been observing and the hiatus that unfortunately artists have had to make, in some respects, this all can feel like it was for nothing, right? So I'm only bringing this up because, you know, people are certainly pushing forward to do something as soon as possible. 
I'm not sure it's the best idea. <laughs> yeah. But, I'm, I'm feeling um, my heart racing just hearing this. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Yeah, I can send you the article after we're done here. Mm. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's they're talking about everybody's going to have their temperature taken before they go into the venue. Everything will be wiped down. Um, I mean, you know, they're trying to enact all these protocols, which they obviously have to do, but um, I'm not sure it, it makes sense to do it at this point if it's there's, not to mention the actual number of cases continues to kind of grow each day. We haven't really hit that leveling off of the curve yet. Yeah. I, um, um, I, uh, yeah, I, I don't have a lot of words for that one, but it, it, it makes me kind of, I mean, sometimes when I hear about these kinds of things, it makes me think to what end and for what reason, like the why of the why of that, right? Right. Is it some branding exercise of going first? Is it like what what could possibly be the overriding reason to uh, try and tackle this thing uh, so kind of maverickly uh, mm-hmm. uh, when there is so very much at stake? For our field, obviously, as you identified, for the artists, for the people there. I mean, the identity of the place, the identity of the state, it can create all kinds of things. Um, right. I'm, I'm, I'm glad I'm not there. <laughs> right. I thought it was just worth mentioning because I read it yesterday and I thought, oh, my gosh, this is – I almost couldn't believe it. What are, what are some of the things that you're hearing from some of your colleagues as far as uh, does it look like people are going to try and have a fall season, um, a spring season for that matter, a year from now? Uh, is it sort of mixed? Yeah, it's you know it's it's interesting because I've I've been on the phone and Zoom calls and you know with all different kinds of presenting colleagues, clubs, uh, festival directors, uh, international and and throughout the U.S. And what I think, you know, really I think what we're going to see, it's uneven. I mean, some people have moved forward and actually put their program out to the audiences already. And it identifies the projects and programs that they have going in the fall of 2020 through, um, you know, 2021. Uh, And they, I think, in a way, have done that with quite a few caveats to try and, you know, our, our impulse to proceed or the brochure was already printed and I've just got to get it out there. Or we'd rather deal with ticket refunds later on if we can't proceed or whatever um, than to just have nothing to uh, put out there. So there's that kind of thing. That's more rare. Uh, What I'm seeing more is that the confidence level of uh, performing arts presenting uh, organizations is that 2021 is where the kind of comfort level to try and put things out and make it stick is living. I think 2021, uh, you know, a lot of people pivoted and started to scramble to move dates uh, into 2021 and out of the fall of 2020. But it's also, you know, and some people completely like, no, we're skipping the whole year and going into we'll start in fall of 2021 because they know they're closer to a vaccine, maybe. Um, or just the relief of having made a decision that, that kicks the can down the road and, and trying again. Um, so it's pretty uneven. Um, you know, when it comes to me, the thing that I have been uh, so profoundly um, just uh, it's just so vivid uh, uh, and it's and it's not to say that the art community or the performing arts community is any different than many 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 other professions and practices and individuals who are totally impacted and often imperiled by this whole situation so I'm not uh, trying to think of us as singularly different but we do have an economy that keeps our mobility and our way of working that has been completely like suspended. Uh, 
you know, ticket revenue is a very important part of how artists are paid, how managers, producers, and agents can mobilize and work, you know, move the work around uh, so that, you know, well, you know, artists and before long before we're presenting something, artists are doing creative development. They're creating the new work. They're creating an idea. They're giving it form and contour and shape. They're bringing different musicians or dancers into the project. And that is all a boatload of resource, time, dreaming, energy, uh, rehearsal, rehearsal spaces. That resource is usually something that producers and managers are dealing with with the artists in advance. Some presenters are. Like, we definitely create commission and co-commissioning support for the creative development of work. But by and large, artists and managers, agents, etc., make, um, are paid. Their income is coming from after the performer has performed on the stage, right? That's when um, there's, you know, some shekels. So by pivoting so that we as presenters who are part of that economy uh, have delayed the time sequence of when work can happen or when we feel like it is viable to make happen for safety reasons and everything else, it means there's a cash flow suspension for artists, which I find, you know, it, it, it's staggering. So even so, one of the things that I get concerned about is saying, "Gosh, if you do," and one of the conversations I have is, "Do the artists and their um, management or producing company or boutique agency or whatever have the capacity to hold on for an entire year before a work that would have been otherwise ready to go can come back into shape and have mobility? Can we?" Can we hold on that long? And it's a big question, don't you think, Mike? I have to say, it's the question, it's the singular question that keeps me up at night right now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, as a small business owner running a boutique agency, it's the number one question I have. I keep thinking about exactly what you're talking about. I keep thinking about um, somewhat fast-forwarding to this fall, say November, Yeah. and regardless of if, if live music and events and art is is happening consistently by that point or not, as you've correctly pointed out, the actual cycle, the booking cycle, has that 12 to 18 to 24 month in some cases yep. um, lag time. And so that's really where I think my head and, and certainly some of my peers, you know, that's where our thoughts are. How, does, how is that going to affect the artists and everybody else um, who's, who's a part of it, and how are you going to weather the storm? And then the other question I have, which I don't, I think is, is probably becoming clearer for people each day, um, is, okay, let's say you survive that year-long period. The question then is, well, what are people's budgets going to look like <laughs> at that point, right, or after that point? Exactly. Um, because I'm already hearing and from my conversations uh, like if we're just going to take the example of festivals that have looked, that have pushed to next year, right? In some some cases, what I'm hearing is, well, we're, we're we've been reduced by at least a third, if not more, right? Yes. Um, and everybody is going to have much much smaller budgets to work with if they're lucky to kind of weather it, right? So it's that's right. I don't know. I mean, I hate to say it, but I really do think it's going to get worse before it gets better. Yeah. I mean, there's the there's the kind of um, psychological and creative contours of desire and aspiration and you know we're seeing this too artists are putting work out there from their archives or they're opening up streaming while they you know do things from their kitchens and that does not really have an economy but it is so important to them to try and just offer what they can you know the Americans for the Arts uh, along with the Artist Relief um, .org, which is, I can tell you about that if you don't know about it. It was a huge effort, and um, they're creating, you know, artist relief grants um, as we speak. They're doling them out um, to the best they can. But the Americans for the Arts also did a big survey uh, of artists that had been in 
um, that had applied uh, for relief support. And one of the things that was really both beautiful and um, staggering is that many of them, I think the statistic, and you can look it up, but the statistic is something like, you know, 85% of their creative income is basically gone, right? Mm-hmm. Through not only, and creative income meaning what they make through their art or what they are contracted to do um, with their creativity peripherally. Like maybe they teach or maybe they do guest sessions in other fields or maybe they, you know, maybe they run a Pilates studio. Who knows? Or they give voice lessons. That income which has always been there as a kind of the ability of being able to contribute of your creative self and artistry into other kinds of systems um, that also give you flexibility for when you have a major project or a major tour that is going out, which are, you know, sometimes spaced pretty far and wide. If 85% of all of your income essentially has dried up, in the survey, another question that they were asked and what they ended up revealing is that 85 plus, like 90 some percent of all artists asked, want to be able to use their talent to help others, regardless of being paid. Mm-hmm. And and so there is that kind of, and I think it's something that we all are feeling, this feeling of like, I cannot see how we're going to be standing in the same kind of possible configuration a year from now. And at the same time, I am now going to put every bit of my emotional labor and leadership and advocacy and effort and scheming to try to make meaningful use of the work we do in the world to a public that is equally and worldwide affected. How do we manifest that gift of cultural continuity even when we don't have income? I think it speaks quite uh, importantly to really why, by and large, we're all in this and we're being called to give of ourselves in new ways. We will have to figure out the economy because Obviously, I mean, because, yeah, what I said, and we're working on it, but it's going to be in communion with audiences and people who are unemployed, and when are they coming back into having some income, and where do we sit on that scale of importance, and all of those kinds of things are about a slow build back towards not necessarily the same scale of ambition, but the critical, enduring uh, gift of of the work of artists and all of us in the peripheral sphere of that uh, to continue carrying things forward. Can you, Christy, can you just mention the name of the that organization again for anybody who's listening, especially artists who might be listening who want to learn more about it? Is there yeah. a website they could go to? Yeah, there's, there's, there's two that I mentioned. One is um, Americans for the Arts. They are an incredible, long-standing, I think 60-year-old, really knowledgeable research and lobby engine for and on behalf of the arts, um, writ large in this country. And they work, I mean, the National Endowment for the Arts would not exist if it wasn't for AFTA. So you you can find them through a quick Google search and they have a ton of information and are really timely about getting things turned around and out into the world. And the other, which I mentioned, um, the Relief Fund. This is, this, this is a beautiful, beautiful story about the power of uh, uh, collective action and a solidarity of purpose. Um, it's called artistrelief.org. It was formed by and it's staffed by Um, organizations like the Americans for the Arts, Creative Capital, uh, no, United States Artists, Creative Capital, Artadia, the Young Arts Foundation. And these are entities that give grant money, usually through the fellowships and awards, to 
independent artists. Sundance Institute is involved in it. And so what they did was they all came together, uh, and I was on the phone. It was like the third phone call I made when I knew that the spring of this this coming spring was going to have to be canceled. Um, and I saw what was happening to artists around the country and internationally. I, I called um, Dina Hagag, who's the director of United States Artists. And she was like, yes, this is going to be we, – we've got to talk about this at our next board meeting. You know, how do we how do we help artists? And I was like, three weeks from now is going to be too late. we got to get moving. And they literally started picking up the phone. They raised uh, $10 million in the course of wow. three weeks. Uh, the Mellon Foundation really stepped up, and our colleague Emil and Elizabeth, who are there, and all of them – really stepped up from the foundation. They gave $5 million to it. And on the day that it was launched, and now staffed by, you know, multiple, the staff of multiple uh, organizations, these relief grants are $5,000. And on the very first day it went live, there were 26,000 applicants. Wow. So people are continuing to put money into it. They are turning these grants around very rapidly and in the priority order of profound, like, urgent need. Literally, I'm living in my car. I'm going to have to try and sell my saxophone, like, or I can't feed my children. I mean, super urgent. And then they move towards next scale urgent, next scale urgent. And they will continue raising money and giving these grants out um, all the way down the line through September. And so it's a really important not only story about arts administrators and thinkers who moved quickly. Um, they made the process seamless for artists, not onerous, and are still raising money and redistributing it. Thank you for sharing both of those resources. I think people are going to find those really helpful, and yeah. especially as yeah, especially as the days go by, people are going to need more more information like that at their disposal yeah. for sure. And you know, that's like at at CAP UCLA, we're putting out. I do we do this kind of. It's like we've turned our our organization into a information channel, but it's uh, we put out a weekly newsletter, and we always there's a section in there artist resources because a lot of the people who are on the database are obviously artists, and it's interesting. It's like you know the Louis Armstrong Foundation stepped up and created a, a, a relief fund for jazz um, musicians. And so we're aggregating these kinds of resource places and trying to get them out um, so that artists are aware of them. And Americans for the Arts, as I mentioned before, also has quite a few of those. So there are, I mean, I do feel like the philanthropic community, be that individual philanthropists or foundations, foundations in States and communities, foundations that are operating regionally or nationally, there's a lot of pivoting, a lot of thinking, and a lot of um, energy that, that we are going to need collectively to come through um, from them. And, and they, of course, are also working on this effort. If somebody wants to be, if somebody wants to receive the newsletter you mentioned, do they go to CAP UCLA's website, or how, how yeah. can they sign up for that? Yeah, and it just it'll say sign up for e-news. Um, and so I usually write a letter every week. We have a section in there that's about the we call it small wonders, and it's literally the kinds of things that independent artists are doing right now. That when you think of it in the scale of what it takes to crank out some form of creativity, or to do something that helps other musicians and artists and performers. So we put that in small wonders and things that artists are streaming. Uh, we try and shine a light on that. And then there's resources. And then there's certain kinds of articles. You know, I also think art writers, music critics, you know, the people who are writing in the dailies or the magazines, we try and pull and it's called food for thought, but it's the writers themselves who are also writing about what is happening to the ecology. They're educating a public to what I think for most of us, you know, we stand behind the fourth wall. We want an audience to feel like just come, get into it, buy your ticket, be welcome. 
we don't they aren't as aware of what goes on behind the scenes and how all of this even I mean it is a miracle every single time there's a live performance on a stage it's a miracle it's incredible what goes into it before that moment and how many hands and how many people have put their shoulder to the wheel and their identities and their small little businesses or their not-for-profit organizations into making that one particular moment which becomes essentially a cultural memory. So these writers are writing about our e ecosystem financially, what's happening, and, and, and I think those are really important pieces of writing, let alone the fact that, you know, we need these um, critics and writers to also be able to sustain. Where do we go from here? <laughs> I'm hearing so many different, I mean, you know, people are, a lot of people are trying to figure out how they're going to make something work in the future, whether it's, the, whether it's the venue I just mentioned in Arkansas in a few weeks, or yeah. it's um, an organization waiting to see what happens in the fall. Like, how does? Well, let me just kind of. Um, yeah, I wish I had that bit. crystal ball for you there, Mike. <laughs> let me rephrase my question here. Um, what are some of the things you guys are thinking of doing? And maybe more specifically, you know, I'm thinking at UCLA Royce Hall. Yeah. which by some comparison could be considered a larger venue. Um, you had already talked a little bit about the idea of maybe, you know, how do we scale it down? How, do, how does that look? Are these some of the scenarios you might be looking to do? Oh, yeah. I mean, there is definitely, like, a couple of things. First of all, you know, well, you would understand this very well. I mean, back in the day, we all worked with, like, letters of intent and, our word was our bond, and the contract was just kind of peripheral and on the side. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, mm -hmm. There's there's something around the 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 level of mutual trust across our different um, corners of this, and one of the biggest mutual trust points, in my opinion, and where the Center for the Art of Performance puts its um, highest priority is in, up, in upholding the integrity of what an artist is working on. So we worked in, we had all of 20, you know, fall of 2020 through spring of 2021. Our, our season was ready to, we were in design and ready to go when this happened. We also had about 14 um, artist projects through this spring, this spring that we are now living through that were impacted because of the COVID-19 um, situation. So we immediately worked to reschedule those who had been, you know, postponed. I couldn't handle the word cancel. Cancel is a big word. Postponement is something else. But the effort to reschedule was big, and we put all of that into 20 and 21. And then, of course, as the timeline started running out, we started to also realize, oh, not all of this is going to work. So we started to talk with ma managers and agents and artists, like what would you honestly feel like if you could cast out your body into October? Will you want to get on a plane? Will you, would you rather drive? Like how important is this? And if money is not the issue, driving your honest response, and please don't let it be, even though we all know but that's crucial. How will you feel in that kind of configuration? And most of them, in by and large, were like totally overwhelmed and I don't yet know, which is completely honest. So for the center, what we have been doing is looking at what are the, you know, resources that we have. And they're not many because usually there's like, as you know, Part of it is a combination of what you can raise through the support of either a grant or your membership or a patron or you, you raise something in advance that allows you to be able to make a commitment. And then you're hoping that the audience in attendance and their ticket sales will cover the rest of what needs to be covered so that we all come out relatively whole 
and can go to the next project. But without ticket income and without, um, you know, like what is an organization's membership base doing and if they're not getting discounts and various things, are they still going to contribute out of solidarity? We're just learning that now. But with the resources that the center does have, which isn't very much, we have shifted some of these contracts into commissioning support, meaning the creative development to either redevelop your idea for the future or to um, think about how it might hold in an online strategy, which music sometimes seems to have, it's much easier, not easier, I don't even, what is that word? I'm sorry I even said it. It's, it seems to have a little more flexibility in the music world for the because artists are used to, you know, making albums and doing music videos and there's various other kinds of things. Whereas dance and theater, it's a totally different kettle of fish. But can we put resources in front of people that helps keep the wolf off the do away from the door so that they have some cushion to think through where they want to position their creativity along with producers, agents, and managers? And that will give us a way of knowing that we are putting our promise uh, financially into the people that we have commitments to. And that promise may take a different form because of what an artist can or can't do. But we are not just holding back resources, waiting for a future that may not include them because we did not put what we had towards them. And it's not much and it's not overwhelming and it's not staggeringly impressive and it doesn't solve a ton of problems. But it is a way of saying that we care about their future as much as our own. And if we work together on giving it form, we have a chance to get there. Well, thank you for describing some of the things you got some of the things you guys are considering. Um I hope that you know, I hope other people listening to this are, are it's helping them think about what they might be able to do as well. And that's really important, I think, just to kind of circle back to this idea that no matter what side of the table you're on, we're all in this together. Um, yeah. Certainly the sharing of information and ideas right now is more important than ever. And I hope that, um, you know, people who are listening are are, you know, getting some good ideas. I mean, just hearing you describe that is giving you some some food for thought for sure. Oh, good. You know, it is, it's, it's also true too. Like we are going to be experiencing, uh, you know, music, dance and theater for a while in some way, either in very small groups at great distances <laughs> or on mm -hmm. our screens or a combination therein. And any chance that one has, and depending on their own circumstance, you know, Throw some money in that online tip jar if it comes to you. Um, follow these artists and agencies and, you know, not-for-profits and presenting organizations and everything so that there's a way to communicate. As we find out what we can do, we will obviously be sharing it. But it's the small micro economy that I think can swell up in a way that we are used to from like you know it's like the it's it's like even in ticket sales they're often uh you know the pricing is kind of tiered but it's that recognition that the lowest possible ticket you ever imagined you could sell is even if it's like three dollars or five is still something that you're willing to absolutely embrace because you want people there and people who have you know small means can do big things by continuing to think through that tip jar every every little bit helps absolutely it yeah. really does it really does yeah but i also think too you know some of our national service organizations in the arts the arts you know uh arts presenters, um, APAP, various things like that, um, ISPA for internationals. These are 
or the regionals, Western Arts Alliance and Mid-Atlantic Arts, various, there's ways for us to also look at these as big platforms for a voice coming from our professions that is saying, too, we're going to need to push for investment into our ecosystem. The performing arts are going to be, and museums as well, they're going to be crucial for how people learn how to come back together in a society and in a democracy. How do we come back together, truly now, physically? And how do we have neighborly care? And how do we uh, respect a stranger and everyone's presence to be in that space? The performing arts are, are, are where we are, a, we are a binding agent. We are like a glue across cultures, age groups, economics, regions, you know, the whole thing. And that binding of a glue towards the creativity of artists creates community. And we'll have to remake our communities as we move forward. And we're going to need help to do it. And that's going to have to come from government, philanthropy, and, of course, we the people. Well, for what it's worth, you've got me inspired. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just, you know, hearing you describe this, I'm just thinking to myself on a personal level, I'm, you know, I, I'm I'm planning on coming out the other side. <laughs> and that I want to be there for not only for my artists, but also as a fan of music and the arts when it when the space opens up again and how much I'm anticipating whatever that first show I may go to whatever whichever artist that may be just how powerful that's an experience that's going to be yeah that's also something I think a lot about too you know I know we don't know when that's going to happen and I'm not saying I'm going to drive down to Arkansas right now right but you know when that happens it's it's so going to be worth it and so thank you for you know, the the point about how the arts are a glue, I think some people don't realize that either, and it's so crucial. It is. It is. I mean, we make the kind of – we make a cultural memory together. When we bear witness to what an artist is doing, when an artist is putting something on a stage, it's not like we can collect and own it. But it is that we can participate in being the living memory of what that is. We're the living archive of that work. And we can help it by being present to its attendant needs. Thanks, Mike. Thank you, Christy. I think this is a good point to end our conversation. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. And for all of your work <laughs> and everybody in your, you know, your artists, everybody, it's like, you know, uh, thank you.